welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on September 25th, Lord's Day Service. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're all afraid to give up our favorite sins to honor you. And so may your spirit visit us this morning and work in us repentance and obedience with a joyful heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This episode is recorded in all three synoptic gospels. In each, we're told that the man is wealthy. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 20, we're told that the man is young. And then in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, we're told that he's a ruler. And so this is the story of the rich, young ruler. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 1, we're told that he's from Judea. And so he is a rich, young ruler from Judea, which means he is a member of the government council. And since his familiarity with the Ten Commandments goes back to childhood, told in verse 20, that means he is Jewish. So who is this man? Well, he is a rich, young Jewish ruler from Judea, which almost certainly means he is a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the center of political, religious, and economic power. Sanhedrin members often inherit their position because of family status. So they're, they're usually from wealthy families or well-connected, influential families. They are the ruling class. And in verse 19, it's suggested that the government officials are defrauding the people. So who is the government defrauding? Well, Again, according to verse 21, the suggestion is is that they're defrauding poor people. And this has been well documented how this worked in the first century world, how the Jewish leaders were working with Pilate and some of the other uh, Roman officials to defraud the Jewish people. And the process of defrauding involves the use of corrupt civil bureaucrats, many of whom serve on the Sanhedrin. The governing officials profit off of the poor and they collect much 
property. That's what verse 22 says. It says he had great possessions. Possessions, that's the word for property, the word for real estate. He had great property. He had great real estate. And so the story is this. A rich young ruler, a member of the ruling class who is defrauding poor people, asks Jesus the way to eternal life. Jesus points him to the law and recites the commandments from the second table of the law. All but one, the notable exception, is the tenth commandment, which forbids covetousness. The rich young ruler claims he has obeyed all these commandments. He apparently doesn't understand what is involved in keeping the commandments. And so, Jesus assigns him a task that reveals he has not kept the law like he thinks he has, or at least like he claims he has. And the task Jesus assigns him is to sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And we see in verse 22 that the man refuses to obey and he walks away sad. Now this is the only time in Mark's gospel when someone is specifically bid to follow Christ and they refuse. And I want you to notice that refusing Jesus' call results in sadness. Now, there's a lot of different ways to look at this story, but it really boils down to this. Following Jesus is costly. Following Jesus is costly. And so let's consider three ways that Christian discipleship is costly. First, discipleship requires a reorientation of good. Discipleship requires a reorientation of your understanding of good. So look with me at verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, so notice, how does the rich young ruler address Jesus? Well, he calls Jesus good teacher. So he wants to discuss an important matter with a good teacher. The rich man asks Jesus to tell him what he needs to do to obtain eternal life. Now that suggests a few things. And that means the, the man must think that he himself is good enough to do whatever it is that Jesus will tell him. The man must assume that he can find eternal life in his own resources in his own accomplishments. And this is why Jesus says when reviewing the incident in verse 27, with man it is impossible. When you try to follow Jesus according to your own resources, that is impossible. But notice that the first words of Jesus' answer to the man in verse 18 are a rude shock. Verse 18, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. See, Jesus is hung up on something the man said. The man asks about eternal life, and Jesus, in return, challenges the man's understanding of goodness. And notice in verse 18, how does Jesus redirect the rich young ruler's understanding of goodness? He points him back to God the Father. Now, this need not alarm us that Jesus doesn't point to himself. Remember who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. He came to earth to reveal the Father. He came to earth to point people to God the Father. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus says, I have come to reveal God the Father. 
And so before Jesus can answer the man's question about eternal life, he must teach the man that notions of goodness must always be re-examined in light of God's goodness. And that's something we need to hear. Our understanding of goodness must come from God Himself and what God has revealed of Himself in His Word. And so our understanding of goodness must be examined in light of God's goodness. Now what if we started doing that? What if we truly defined goodness in light of God's goodness, in light of what God has said in Scripture? How then would we define good art? How would we define good music and good stories? How would we define good conversation and good politicians? How would we define good colleges? We, just like the rich young ruler, need our notion of goodness, our definition of goodness in what is good and what is not good, recalibrated from time to time, recalibrated in light of God's goodness, recalibrated in light of God's character and what He has revealed in Scripture. Remember what Jesus says in verse 18, no one is good except God alone. And what has this good God done? Well, for starters, He made a world. And in the story of God creating the world, as told in Genesis, God declares many things good. He declares the stars good, the earth good, the animals good, and so on. And then it goes on from there. It's not just Genesis 1. If you look in Scripture, we're told over and over again what is good and what is not. Scripture speaks a lot about what is good. In the New Testament, Christ, in the book of Matthew, speaks of good fruit, good salt, good works, good gifts, good news, and good seed. In Mark chapter 4, verse 8, Jesus speaks of good soil. In Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus speaks of good pleasure. In John chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus speaks of good wine. You see, Scripture has a lot to tell us about what is good. Elsewhere in Scripture, we read that Luke does a good job in writing his gospel in Luke chapter 1, verse 3. We read in Luke chapter 10, verse 42, that there is a good portion. And also in Luke chapter 23, that there is a good man in Joseph of Arimathea. In Acts chapter 6, verse 3, we read of a good reputation. In Romans chapter 7, verse 13, we read of the good law. In Romans 13, we read of good conduct and good rulers. In 1 Corinthians, we read of a good order and the common good. In 2 Corinthians, we read of good courage and good will. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 17, we read of a good purpose. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, we read of good hope. In 1 Timothy, we read of a good conscience, a good standing, a good servant, good doctrine, good confession, and good foundations. In 2 Timothy, we read of the good deposit, the good soldier, and the good fight. In James chapter 2, verse 3, we read of the good place. In 1 Peter, we read of good behavior 
and good stewards. And in 3 John, we read of good health and good testimony. You see, if we're going to re-examine our understanding of goodness with God and what He's revealed in His Word, then understand that God's Word has a lot to say on the matter. And that's not all. In Proverbs, King Lemuel affirms that a good wife is hard to find. And so what's the point of all of this that I'm sharing with you? The point is that we're commanded to define goodness in terms of God Himself and what He has revealed in His Word. And if Jesus defines goodness in terms of God the Father, shouldn't we? And furthermore, if Jesus says that no one is good except God alone, then doesn't that mean that all goodness in this life and in this world, all goodness is derived from God. Goodness is not an accident. Goodness is derived from God Himself. Think about the implications of that. If goodness is derived from God, that is, if God is goodness itself, then that means that the goodness of a sweet, crisp apple depends on God. If God is goodness itself, then that means the goodness of a story arc in a film depends on God. And so before Jesus can answer the rich young ruler's question about eternal life, he wants him to re-examine his notion of goodness. And he wants him to see that God himself is goodness. Now, think about that. Because if a rich young ruler, if this rich young ruler came to a modern American evangelical and asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What would the evangelical say to him? The evangelical would say, you need to bow your head and pray this prayer after me. The evangelical would lead him to say the sinner's prayer. But notice that's not what Jesus does. Notice what Jesus asks him. He asks about eternal life and Jesus says, wait, 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 you're asking about eternal life, but do you understand goodness? Remember, no one is good except God alone. Let's get that straight first. And so the first thing we see in this passage is that discipleship requires a reorientation of your notion of good. Second, we see that discipleship requires a repentant heart. In verse 20, notice it says the man kept all these commandments, or he claims he's kept all these commandments. Did he really keep all these commandments? Did he really keep all these commandments since he was a boy? And the answer is no. And that's why Jesus responds the way he does. Jesus responds by telling him to sell everything. Jesus is asking the man to sell everything, to do something, to truly demonstrate, to reveal that the man has not obeyed the commandments. And so Jesus assigns him this task, and this task is revealing that he has not kept the law. The man claims he's kept all these commandments since he was a boy, which means he doesn't understand what's involved in keeping the commandments. For the rich young ruler, Jesus is pointing out with the way he responds, for the rich young ruler, if the choice is between money and Jesus, he chooses money. And so he's not obeying the law. He's not following God. 
And so Jesus, in his response, creates a situation where there can be no retreat. There is no room for the rich young ruler to make empty claims of obedience. Jesus bids him to embrace voluntary poverty, because this is the only way for the rich young ruler to reach the true way of obedience, to sell and then follow. Sell everything? Is that a universal command? I mean, are all Christians supposed to sell everything? Well, the command to sell everything is a command that pertains to the spiritual need of the rich young ruler. Other persons have to give up other things to follow Jesus. Maybe a vocation, maybe a lifestyle, or a besetting sin. And so, if a homosexual comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus would say, renounce homosexuality and follow me. If a serial adulterer comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus would say, renounce infidelity and follow me. If someone who holds grudges and doesn't forgive people comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus would say, be a forgiving person and follow me. If someone who brags constantly comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus would say, renounce boasting in yourself and follow me. Understand, the call is not to poverty per se. The call is to Christ. This man is on a path, and his path is defrauding people, abusing his power as a bureaucrat, and then accumulating a lot of real estate. That's the path he's on. You can't be on that path and then also on the path to follow Jesus. You can only be on one path, and so you must turn from that path and follow Christ. And so the call is not to poverty per se. The call is to Christ, to get on the path of Christ and follow Him. That's the call to Christian discipleship. Discipleship means follow Christ, and that always requires repentance. It requires turning from that sin. And for the rich young ruler, that's being a corrupt government official who steals and collects property. Require, repentance requires turning from that sin, that thing that you exalt over God. And so following Christ means obeying God's commands. And obeying God's commands is costly. It's costly, which means it involves sacrifice. It means amputation. Remember, Mark chapter 9, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What does that mean? It means if your lifestyle causes you to sin, then you need to repent and follow Christ. And so, for the rich young ruler, that means sell all your possessions and give to the poor. For the homosexual, it means turning from your homosexuality. Or it might mean turning from your infidelity. Or it might mean turning from your braggadocia and follow Christ. And so what we see in this passage is, first, discipleship requires a reorientation of good, and second, discipleship requires a repentant heart. And third, building on the second point, third, 
Discipleship requires undivided loyalty. Discipleship requires undivided loyalty. Let's look again at verse 20. He said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. You see, the, the rich young ruler thinks he's doing enough. And yet the rich young ruler is a man under sin. And notice, he wishes to evade commitment to a definite moral obligation. He's deluded himself. Yeah, I've kept all the commandments. He's delusional. He is trying to evade a definite moral obligation. And so Jesus says, obey the commands. And the rich young ruler says, ah, I've been obeying the commands. That's simple. What's next? Verse 23, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. You see what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is calling the rich young ruler to be done with evasive discussion. This is what we do when we want to hang on to that sin. And rather than follow Christ, we want to continue this lifestyle of sin. And Jesus says, no, 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 be done with that. Be done with evasive discussion and follow Christ. And you also need to notice that wrapping up your sin in evasive discussion is a particular problem for the young and for government employees. Young people often evade following Christ, evade repentance, and honoring the Lord with evasive discussion. Just a bunch of talk. So you don't have to do anything. And government officials also who defraud the people, they also justify their sin with just a bunch of words floating around. Maybe no one will actually see what's going on if I just keep talking, if I just evade the issue. And notice also the rich young ruler checks both boxes. He's young and he's a corrupt bureaucrat. And so there is a tendency for both the young and the corrupt to evade the real thing. Just a bunch of talk or thoughts in your head or emotions that cloud the real thing. They avoid commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the rich young ruler tells Jesus, give me something to do to secure eternal life. And Jesus' response is that the way to have treasure in heaven is by giving Jesus his undivided loyalty. You cannot continue to walk down that path and then also walk down the path of following Christ. You must reverse course. You must repent and give Christ your loyalty. You see, the rich young ruler lacks one thing, and that is full-hearted obedience to Jesus Christ. And I'll repeat, this is the only time in Mark's gospel when someone called to Christ, when someone called to discipleship, refuses. And again, notice in verse 22, the man wants to keep walking down his path, and he walks away sorrowful. And so in conclusion, we see that Christian discipleship requires a reorientation of your notion of good. It requires a repentant heart and it requires undivided loyalty. The rich young ruler's way to life is blocked by his unwillingness to surrender his possessions and follow Jesus. And you might remember the parable of the soils. 
that Jesus talks of a person, Mark 4, 19, who the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word. The rich young ruler is the man talked about in Mark chapter 4, verse 19. He is the seed growing in the thorny soil. If you want to know what that looks like, this is it, the rich young ruler. All those who consider the gospel of Jesus Christ must face the uncomfortable realization that the call to renunciation of that sin is not for this man alone. The universal truth is this. Those who exalt other things higher than Christ, those who treasure other things higher than Christ, whether it's their possessions, in the case of the rich young ruler, or their gender identity, or their carnal pleasure, or their status, or their whatever it is, they will walk away from Christ sorrowful, just like the rich young ruler does in verse 22. They want to stay on their path of sin, and when they do, they will walk away from Christ sorrowful. Jesus is the God-man who holds babies in his arms and says, to such as these belong the kingdom of God. Receive it like a helpless baby. And Jesus is also the God-man who gives the cleansing flood of moral truth to those who treasure the wrong thing. Are we not perhaps all afraid to follow Christ for the same reason the rich young ruler is afraid? He doesn't want to give up his possessions. And we too, are we not afraid to give up that sin that we think is giving us so much pleasure? If we let Christ enter fully into our lives, if we open ourselves totally, him, totally to Him, are we not afraid that we might lose something that we enjoy? Well, if you have that fear, then I want you to know that if you renounce that sin and follow Christ, once the story is fully written and you've seen it all from start to finish, you lose absolutely nothing. You lose absolutely nothing of what makes life free. You lose absolutely nothing of what makes life beautiful. And you lose absolutely nothing of what makes life glorious. You see, when we follow Christ, when we let Christ in, when we receive the kingdom of God like the helpless babe, we receive a hundredfold in return. He says in Mark chapter 10, verse 30. The rich young ruler walks away sad because he has many possessions. He calculates that it's too painful of an experience to get rid of his possessions. And in this, he fails to calculate that it will be far more painful to keep them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we see that in this passage, the besetting sin is possessions, it's wealth, it's money, it's power. And so in light of that, Father, we yield our all to you. Father, we don't want to be captured by possessions like the rich young ruler. And so we pray that with the poor widow, we will cast our two pennies, our soul and body, into your treasury. We desire to be those who willingly lay all at your feet, for they are yours. Our possessions we give up as your right, not our right. 
We will call nothing ours but yours because everything that is ours is yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh,